Listeners of the Remarkable People podcast will learn from some of the most successful people in the world. They provide practical tips and inspiring stories that will help you be more remarkable. If you live in the U.S. or Canada, text 831-609-0628 to get notified of each new episode. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. We're on a mission to make you remarkable. Helping me in this episode is my friend, Dan Lyons. He is going to tell us how to talk less and accomplish more. One might think that Dan has pretty much done it all. He was a technology editor at Newsweek, a staff writer at Forbes, columnist for Fortune, while also contributing op-ed columns to the New York Times. In addition, he was a writer for HBO's Silicon Valley series. If you haven't watched it, put that on your to-do list. It perfectly, although maybe a little over the top, captures Silicon Valley. You should know that during Dan's time working at Forbes, he had a blog which I just loved. It was called The Secret Diary of Fake Steve Jobs. It drew an audience of more than a million monthly readers. Dan received a BA in liberal arts from Bradford College and obtained a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at the University of Michigan. He is a great writer, so it's only natural he has written books. He is the author of Disrupted, Lab Rats, and his latest book, STFU. The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. His new book reminds us to talk less, listen more, and speak with intention. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. And now, here is the remarkable and hysterical Dan Lyons. And we have a special guest, too. We've had interactions over the years and never once did I think, oh my God, that guy talks too much. And then I read your book and I learned that maybe when you don't think somebody who talks too much talks too much, it's because maybe you talk too much too. (laughs) So Uh, I was really worried there for a while. You're a a great talker, right? And you've done, oh God, so much public speaking, you're out in the public so much and promoting books that it's very natural for you and you're good at it because you've done so much of it. And then your personality is probably, you know, you're an outgoing, friendly person. You like to meet people. So yeah, you might talk more than some shy people, but that's different than having a problem. (laughs) Because I have, I have sort of that, right? Like I can get up and give a talk, but I also have a problem. (laughs) I have to say, Dan, I am just amazed at the amount of self-deprecating humor and honesty in the book, especially about your marriage. So my second question is, did your wife read the manuscript and tell you to shut the fuck up and keep her out of the book? Oh, my God. You just seized on it. No. No. She was okay. I wouldn't write anything and publish anything without 
checking with her and then with my daughter because she's in it a little bit. And I, I even said to her, just like last week, was now we just got the this is the finished hardcover of the book. And oh, and there was that article in Time, which people we know read. One of her friends sent actually a nice comment. But I said, my wife's name is Sasha. I was like, are you okay with this? People are going to read this. And she said, yeah, I'm actually fine. Like all of our friends know that we broke up and we got back together. There's no news there. And I didn't, I don't think I wouldn't, I wouldn't anyway go into like, well, rehashing all the things that went wrong, but it was just, anyway, she was amazingly (laughs) okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Third question. So I don't know if you noticed, but on some of your LinkedIn posts, I commented. Yeah. And one of the comments I made was that I thought that the title of your book on the cover is way too small. And as I was making that comment, I thought, you know, guy, you should shut the fuck up because that cover is already locked and loaded. Like, what do you intend to accomplish by telling Dan his cover title is too small? So do you think maybe I should have shut the fuck up about that and not said anything? Do you mean the element of the STFU element in the cover? Yeah. I'll tell you, I know exactly why they did that because some people are not as comfortable with that. It's not profane in that form, but the implied profanity. And in fact, at one point, long before it was done, I said, you know, we should maybe, when we think about changing the title, I feel like STFU, it's a little rude. And we could say something like zip it, which is what Time Magazine ended up doing, right? But I think it was downplayed because of that risque element. So for example, I got hired to give a talk and it's actually not about this book. It's about my last book because it's an old gig that was pre-COVID and leftover. But the agent said, hey, could you give out books? You want to buy a bunch of books like they do? And they said, no, like there's no kids going to be there, but it's sort of a family event. And we didn't think that language is, oh, I don't know. So anyway, that's why it was. The other comment you put on LinkedIn that I liked better was that some of my hearing is diminished, but I got to tell you, it's a blessing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think so too. I think you just like, oh, done. Don't have to hear that. That's a lot oh. of what I've done is tune out, like social media. I just tune out. How do you explain the success of Elon Musk, given that he's the person who most personifies the need to STFU? <laughs> yeah, I thought he and Trump are the two exceptions to the rule, right? Because my thesis is more or less that powerful, important, successful people generally talk less than other people, which is for the most part true. And I have wrestled with the Musk thing and I think that it's akin to the Trump phenomenon that he definitely has a problem with narcissism. He's a like sort of a charismatic narcissist and there are some people who respond very positively to people like Elon or to Trump. I think they actually polarize. Some people are really put off. I'm one of those. And then there are people for whom that works. And I think in some ways, Elon has 
succeeded in spite of his over-talking. So he blurted out the thing about we're going to take the company private at 420 and got in trouble over that. I mean, he always survives the trouble. But oh, the better one, I'm going to go buy Twitter. I'm not going to do any due diligence. I'm just going to buy Twitter. He blurts it out. And then, oh, and he makes an offer, right? He makes a very impulsive offer. Okay, boom, done. And then tries to get out of it and they held him to it. Maybe he likes running Twitter, but I think he has landed himself in trouble sometimes. And I also do think, for example, to compare him to someone else, I'm going to write this article, someone you know very well, Steve Jobs, apparently behind the scenes, and you tell me if this is true, behind the scenes, he was a shouter and a screamer and he'd smash things. He got really, really an emotional guy. But in public, he had this ability to hold back to be very quiet and not to say anything. Their whole culture was very secretive. And I felt like that gave him power because you always wanted to know what's he doing, how fast. You knew he was fascinating if you could just talk to him, but he wouldn't. And even when he gave an interview, he was very careful, very scripted. I feel like if Elon decided suddenly to be completely like that, he would actually be more powerful. He would be the guy that you don't know what he's doing. He's this mysterious, powerful figure. Bezos, for example, doesn't say much in public. Because I actually think giving it all away like that squanders power. So Elon, in a sense, is squandering his power by talking so much, but filling the hole inside himself that needs, it craves adulation. There's no amount of attention that can satisfy him. And so he has to keep getting that fix. He has to keep trolling and getting people stirred up because somehow that gives him a good feeling. But I think in some ways it's a mistake, but he can't help himself. (laughs) I think the important thing for listeners is to not look at Elon Musk and say, okay, so, you know, he's just all over the map, spraying and praying. That's what makes him great. So I'll go do that and I'll be the next Elon Musk because most likely you'll just be an asshole. Right, yeah, you can't pull it off. And that's the thing. There's some X factor that he has that enables him to get away with that. Yeah, you and I would just be, yeah, assholes. But imagine if Steve Jobs had been out on Twitter just gabbing away and throwing shit and insulting people, you would start to think, well, he's a nut. Or Tim Cook. Imagine Tim Cook getting in like petty poo fighting little squabbles with people and throwing shit at each other. Like you wouldn't respect Tim Cook. So yeah, it doesn't work for everyone. I'd be interested to know, what do you think if we talk about Steve or anybody else? What do you think? Now, with the caveat that I'm going to be accused of hypocrisy here because I sometimes do get into it on social media, but... <laughs> oh, you do? You, yeah? Yeah, sometimes when I'm attacked, I just cannot resist. But anyway, I would generally say that less is more. And to take an extreme example, you don't see Jane Goodall arguing with people who are eating meat, right? It's beneath her. Yeah. You do see Greta Thunberg occasionally, but she's savage. She gets it in one line. She's surgical. (laughs) But say, here's the balance. You're a person who very much lives in the public light, and you have for a long time. You're a public figure. You're out there both on social and on email and a newsletter and in public. You've for a long time been out there, but you manage to work that balance of, I'm out here, 
but I'm not oversharing. And I think the content, it matters what you're saying. What you're saying is your message is always very positive. Like, here's how you can do this. Here's how you can do that. You're not a negative person. And I think that that goes a long way. You can live in the public sphere if you do it in the right way. And I think when you are talking, you personally, you're intentional. So the sort of things I've come up with is talk less, listen more, but speak with intention. So you know why you're talking. When you say something, you're not just out randomly rebounding off stuff. You know why you're saying things, which is why your message works. So like you're an effective communicator because when you speak, you know what you're saying. I think that's a big difference. I think you're giving me too much credit, but okay. Well, I'm, I've <laughs> I'm been a long time. You know, you know I've been a fan for a long time and yes, a fan of your work, but I've got to know you over the years a little bit and I've always enjoyed meeting you. You're one of those people that... I remember the first time being a little intimidated. Oh, this guy's this famous guy. And, oh, you know, I've read his books. And then when you meet, you're like the nicest guy. You're, hey, what can I do to help you? Like, you sort of inspired me to be like that with other people to say, if I can do something good for you, let me try to do that. So, I, yeah, I, maybe I'm a little bit, I, but I'm, <laughs> I've been a big fan for a long time. And not just a fan, like the way you'd be a fan of some pop star. I admire you. Like, I'm inspired oh by you. <laughs> Stop talking, Dan. <laughs> You're embarrassing. Now, now I should shut the fuck up. But it's true. And in fact, if I could communicate the way you do, I'd be better off. But I I tend to go either way down here and not say anything or way up here and go, whoa, 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 you know, crazy. <laughs> I don't know. Uh- <laughs> This interview is all over the map. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, see, that's this is the problem with me, and I'm dreading any kind of interviews I'll have to do about the book. Like, how will I keep it together? Now, pretend you're talking to Terry Gross. Okay. okay? So I'm going to ask you NPR kind of questions right now. That'll okay. help you stay on track. Okay. Okay. Yes. How does one know if you are in fact talking too much? What are the signs? <laughs> I'm going to answer with my NPR voice. It's a very <laughs> measured tone. We got to send you a Newman mic. <laughs> well, for one thing, you start to see people want to get away physically or there's verbal cues where they've had enough and you still keep talking or after a conversation you look back and realize I didn't hear anything about what's up with them I just talked and talked so you know you start to examine that I think it begins with just examining the way you communicate which we don't usually do another way would be if you find that you annoy people. After a conversation, you've said things you wish you didn't, and that person is hurt or angry or annoyed, and you've talked your way into trouble. Those would be three ways to know that you talk too much. Continuing with our NPR theme, and Dan, <laughs> yes, God. how do you stop yourself? For me, it begins with before a conversation, 
sitting down and thinking about what the point of the conversation is and what do I hope to accomplish and what do I hope to learn and remind myself that I hope to learn more than I say and I actually put stickers up on the wall above my desk little yellow notes that say things like quiet listen wrap it up as a reminder I also try to work on anxiety because I think a lot of over talking for me and for a lot of people is caused by anxiety one person I went to during the course of writing the book taught me this idea of self-soothing before a conversation before walking into a restaurant taking a minute to just calm down bring yourself down those are some things that I I write about in the book a lot of the book is very prescriptive in that way it's so tactical it's ridiculous okay next NPR question so Dan how do you stop being interrupted if you are the speaker and you have the floor yeah that's a great question and again I I have most of a chapter about interrupting and then part of it is yeah how do you fend off an interrupter and different strategies I think my favorite one comes from a professor at is it William and Mary who has something she calls positive future focus which means don't get angry at the interrupter or ratchet up the heat but present to that person the idea that we will both get more out of this conversation if we both allow each other to speak and finish what we want to say so it's a a polite way of saying to someone hey shut the fuck up I I was talking there are those ways you know (laughs) Kamala Kamala Harris you remember famously in the debate with Mike Pence said Mr. Vice President Mr. Vice President I'm speaking and that can work another strategy is you just keep talking (laughs) which is a great strategy is before the meeting whoever's running the meeting sets it out as a ground rule hey everybody we're going to have a conversation and we're going to let everybody finish what they want to say okay and we get buy-in from the group and then if someone does interrupt yo wait we've all agreed to do it this way and finally you talk to the person in private and say this is a repeat offender you have a tendency to interrupt a lot in meetings and sometimes people will be defensive but sometimes people are unaware of this and just by saying pay attention and to be honest it's usually a man and it's most often a woman being interrupted so it's a conversation where a woman who's being interrupted goes to that person later or you can become an advocate so someone else in the meeting pulls that guy aside and says hey I don't know if you know that do you do this but you know you do and this isn't helping you so I think again framing it in a positive way that let's help you do better in meetings in your book I think you had a great tip along these lines I don't know if you mentioned it as a tip or you just mentioned it as a factual finding, but you said that you looked at transcripts of some of your conversations and there's like whole blocks where it's you and then the other person can't get a word in sideways, right? Exactly. That's a great way to train yourself 
to balance your conversation with someone else on Zoom. Is it very easy to record a Zoom call? And then I think Zoom will even transcribe, but I usually send it out to rev.com because they give you a really nice transcription. And then, yeah, you have a visual. You see it on the page visually. And for me, that was really compelling, a real wake-up call. And can I tell you that full anecdote that you're referring to? We want to keep these answers tight, but I found a woman who teaches listening at a university. One of the very few people in the world who teaches a whole class. And wrote to her, wrote back. And it turns out we have a mutual friend. So that always breaks the ice. And I interviewed her. And then I printed it out. And I looked. And I had done at least 80% of the talking. Visually, I could see it. And I realized (laughs) I have almost nothing from her. And the idea idea was to ask her, how do I listen? (laughs) And so I, I wrote back to her. And we had bonded enough. I was like, look. I kind of hate you. You completely did a rope-a-dope on me. You (laughs) sat back. You listened. And so I said, we have to redo the interview. And we did it. And she was almost helping me through the second one, you know. And I I managed to hold back. But, yeah, looking at a transcript is a very powerful, powerful tool. You touched on a tool that I use, which is we obviously are recording this podcast we take the audio after we edit and we send it to Rev and then Rev sends it back to us and then Madison goes through the transcripts and makes it perfect. It is a source of great pride to me that when we look at those transcripts, it's 90% the guest and 10 or 5% me. And I think that's the way it should be. You're the guest. I'm trying to get your knowledge out. I'm not trying to spew forth my theories. That's why you're a good interviewer. But Larry King said, you know, I never learned anything while I was talking. And the famous Larry <laughs> King, the greatest, the greatest interviewer, right, or of his time, one of, always talked about this. Ask a question, listen. And then really listen. Listen to what the person says. And then the next question is based on that. So you're doing well. If you're getting if you're only ten percent, I think that's like Hall of Fame level. <laughs> <laughs> it would be interesting to compare my transcript to like Joe Rogan's transcript. <laughs> I don't really listen to his podcast. Like I've never listened to a full one. But I'll see sometimes those snippets that get passed around on social. And what always amazes me, usually it's almost always the guest is a guy that I've seen, and they talk over each other constantly. And once you look for it, how often does Joe Rogan start talking while the other person is still talking? It's a lot. And vice versa. So, yeah, in a lot of those sports podcasts, the same thing. It's people talking over each other and I find that maddening but maybe people like it well Joe Rogan has more (laughs) downloads than I do that's for damn sure yes so something's working there and maybe you go well that's just a style but if you imagine being in a conversation with someone at a a dinner party and it's going like that I don't think it would be fun 
Rogan also is good. He asks good questions, I think. He, and he has interesting guests. So that probably helps him. I'll give you a, a little tactical tip that if you turn to podcasting in a big way. So I use a Rodecaster Pro mixing board. Okay. And not because I have fantasies of being a DJ or anything, but one of the advantages of using this Rodecaster Pro mixing board is that after I ask a question, I mute myself on purpose. And this has the effect of you don't hear me grunting, burping, sneezing. And it also, it takes a very conscious act. If I want to interrupt you, I have to unmute myself. I can't just spew out this BS. God, I wish I had interviewed you when I was doing the book because that is so smart. I do that in Zoom calls, especially if it's a group. I'll mute and I try to mostly listen. If you do want to talk, yeah, you have to reach over. That's amazing. That's a great... I, I think of these as little hacks. That's a little hack. One of yours is in the book. And honestly... I saw that. Very much has changed my life in that the maximum number of sentences in an email, five sentences. That's Guy Kawasaki's rule. And I thought to myself, yeah, how many emails do I write that just go on and on? And who reads them? When I get a long email, I don't read it. I just don't. I read a little. But then there's a lot of discipline involved in trying to convey something in that (laughs) short email. And But it also means (laughs) leaving a lot out or, or just saying, can we talk? If there's more than you can say in five sentences, you need to have a conversation. Well, tell me, how did you come up with five sentences? Why was that the number? It's journalistic training, right? It's like what, when, who, why, whatever. That's it. That's all I want to know. I don't want to know your whole freaking family history from the time they came over in the Mayflower. To me, in an email, the first thing I want to know is what do you want? Because everything else doesn't matter if I can't or won't give it to you. So I want that in the first sentence, but I digress. No, but that's another tip I'm going to use. I work in various ways with different people. And I started working in the last few months with a woman who's been around, been a very high-level executive. And her emails are so tight. Take a look at this. What do you think? Do this. Give a read through that. And her text messages, we became close enough to text. They're insane. Like, she invited me to a get-together. And it was, see you Friday. Five o'clock, just the address, the street address. Didn't say, and drive, just what day, what time. And I actually told her, I'm writing this book, and you are like my hero. You're so (laughs) good at this. Because what does it convey? It conveys like, A, I'm busy. B, I know exactly what I want. I'm smart. And I'm just a person who doesn't screw around. Just very direct. And I was like, and I love working with her. I may have the opposite story for you, which is I'm like that. So when I get pitched for people to be on this podcast or something, I I get one or two pitches a day, Dan, from Joe Blow of Blow Consulting, who wrote the book, The Blow Way, 
self-published by Blow Press, two-page email saying, I enjoy your podcast. I believe I should be on it because I've created a seven-digit consulting business and I wrote a book called The Blow Away, blah, 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 blah. And I want to tell him in one sentence, my guess is Jane Goodall. How do you even think you stack up against Jane Goodall and Dan Lyons? Well, I hold myself back because I don't want to be rude. And I let Madison <laughs> send a really heartfelt, we really appreciate you contacting us, but we're just inundated with guests. And we, unfortunately, we can't have all the remarkable people on our podcast because there's only 52 episodes. And, and the amazing thing, Dan, is that Everybody responds back by saying, oh, you're the only person who even responded. Thank you so much. I realize you're too busy to have me. If there's ever an opening, thank you very much. So there is an argument to be made that everybody like you and me needs a Madison to soften us up sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a Madison, but I try to do it. I think that's karma. That's you putting yep. good karma back into the world aside issue in a way but as a reporter when I would get PR pitches you get a lot and I would always try to write back and say I'm sorry not for me it's something and not rude and I would see other reporters usually go on social and complain if you're gonna pitch me at least blah 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 I'm really busy and I always thought you know what you don't look good saying that and the one we'd get a lot I was at Newsweek and you get this usually a young PR person, because they make them do the cold calling. Pick up the phone. Hi, this is so-and-so from Joe Blow Agency. We have a client named blah, blah, blah. And you want to just hang up. But I would always stop and say, that's not what I write about. I can't do that. But tell me, who are you? How long have you been at the agency? Who else do you represent? How do you like... I'd try to build a connection with that person because one time out of 10, they would have a pitch that I want. They would have something. So I, A, it was polite, but B, I also remembered being a young reporter and you got to call people who don't want to take your calls. It's tough. So Madison, you heard that, right? That is a really great suggestion. So when you reject Joe Blow or Joe Blow's person, ask about their background and who else they represent because they may have Michelle Obama or they may have Stacey Abrams or they may have Adam Kinzinger, somebody we want. So I think we add that paragraph to your nice rejection letter, Madison, okay? I think another thing when pitching, like you say, A, B, very tight, right? Five seconds. Keep it tight. What do you want? Okay, so what that guy wants is to get on your podcast and have a lot of people learn about his book. Okay. But I think often people pitch that when they should also be pitching, hey, guy, here's what's in it for you. Here's what I can do for you. My son, both kids are high school seniors and they just applied to college and I kept trying to say to them you're all thinking like okay what do I have to say to make them like me and tell them I do this and I do that and that's you know you also have to say here's what I can do for you I'm the kind of kid I'm going to come there and I'm going to get involved like I'm additive so I think those (laughs) pitches work better 
Or you can just ask Hunter Biden to give you a wreck, but I digress. <laughs> oh, wait, so, oh okay, wait a minute. I, Wasn't that the case where Tucker Carlson asked Hunter Biden to get his kid into a private school? Is yep. that what you're referring to? Yep. Yeah. That was that was the wreck on the laptop. But anyway, mm. I'm going to go down a little bit of a rat hole and I'm going to defy <laughs> the spirit of your book. But I got to tell you a funny thing. So, you know, I'm reading your book and then I come to the paragraph about me and I'm like, oh, shit, I'm so flattered. I, like Dan is mentioning me in his book. But a half an hour before that, I read the paragraph where you said, oh, there was this tech evangelist of a software company Not and he you. was posting 60 times a day. And I thought, shit, Dan is talking about me. He's just not identifying me. <laughs> no, that's not you. No, and I, I purposely didn't say a name because yeah, why, why do that? Now, you know, have you figured out in your mind why men, it's always men interrupting women. Like, what, what is wrong with us? I asked a lot of people that question. And one thing I heard several times was that men are socialized from the time we're little boys to use speech as a way to assert yourself in a pecking order among other little boys. So if you watch a group of boys, or for that matter, a group of grown men. You'll see them all trying to be the alpha and talking as a way of establishing that. So the point is, men do it to men also. In meetings, they tend to do it with women more. But if you see men together, the alpha is the one, like Joe Rogan, interrupting, interrupting, talking over. So we're socialized that way is the theory, and women are socialized to try to build consensus. And so they listen and they talk more. And these stereotypes obviously are not universal. But that's one of the theories, that it begins with how we're socialized as kids. And I think for men, it's so deeply ingrained that we sometimes don't even know we're doing it. And one exercise I think is really cool is the next time you're in a meeting, hang back, be an observer, especially you know, if, if you're not the one making the presentation. And watch, just record how many times does an interruption take place? Just look for it. And you'll see men interrupting women. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's one of the things I write about in the book. And as a man, it made me think, boy, I have to be extra vigilant in conversations with women, both professional and interpersonal. Because I also realized the women in the meeting or the woman you're talking to is just waiting for you to interrupt and go, ah, there you go, another asshole. She's <laughs> expecting it. And when you don't do it, I think it, it's a sign of respect. And it's a sign of saying, no, I really want to hear what you say. But yeah, I think it's how we're socialized. Can I double down on that and say that not only is it rude to interrupt the woman, probably... She is smarter than you and has better things to say than your interruption. Then you and I have had the same professional experience that the women we work with are usually really good and really smart. And I totally agree. 
nobody ever talks about this aspect of Steve Jobs, but at least my recollection of his direct reports in the Mac division, and this is in the 80s, half or more were women. Steve Jobs was absolutely, in my recollection, gender blind. He didn't care what gender, religion, race, sex, creed, color, anything. He only cared, are you insanely great or not? That was it. It was very black and white with him. And he provided, I think, a very good role model in the 80s. Wow. I I didn't know that. But the thing of it is, man, woman, whoever you were, you had to be able to get in the ring with him and go toe-to-toe and defend your ideas. You had to be strong to survive him, right? <laughs> Let me just go on the record and say, I, he scared the shit out of me. <laughs> he got the best work out of me. Because, you know, all these touchy-feely kumbaya HR theories about talking and communicating, reaching mutual goals, focusing on positive accomplishments, blah, blah, blah. Steve Jobs did none of that. He just scared the shit out of me. I didn't want to ever be embarrassed by him. And I'm telling you, contrary to all HR modern theory, that works. Yeah, I worked recently with a woman, so about our age, who had worked in design. She was a designer, had worked at Apple in That No, she was there in the era, maybe when you were there, but then also in 96 when Steve came back. And then for a while she was, it was Chaya Day, the agency that Apple used. And she said the exact same thing. Boy, if you were going to present something to Steve, like you'd go over it and over it. Like you didn't want to go in there with something, you know, not even half-assed. It better be excellent. And you'd be terrified. But she said... It brought out the best in us because it forced us just to go yep. back and be, no, 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 it's got to be better than that. And then once you had that, you were able to go in and say, no, here's why I did this. Here's why I made the decision. Do you know Kim Scott, the radical candor author? No, I don't. Oh, you no. should. You should. We'll talk after this. She's someone you should have on your podcast. She was an executive coach, to all sorts of big people. And she wrote a book called Radical Candor about how to manage people. And not doing what you said, blah, 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 like a way to be direct, but be respectful. And that's a hard thing to do. I guess Steve would be direct, but not necessarily respectful, right? Well, I would make the case, even when he was disrespectful, he was probably right. (laughs) Well, right. I think Bill Gates was kind of the same way from what I've heard about how he managed at Microsoft. He was very combative. And then that, that... shaped a culture where people would debate very aggressively. I, yeah. Look, Bezos is the same way. People would be in terror of Bezos. He had this thing called the question mark email. He got an email from someone who complained about something and it'd go, okay, who runs this group? Oh, Guy Kawasaki. Forward it to you with a question mark. And it would <laughs> instill fear in people because you knew That's not even five sentences. (laughs) One character. But yeah, I think you're right. And he, you'll hear people say, God, Amazon was the most difficult job I ever had, but also the best job. Like I really, really pushed me to do my greatest work. 
up next on Remarkable People. See, the advantage of Steve Jobs was because he didn't say anything. He left this vacuum. You're right. It would, it would be like spending gonna... hours every day with someone you don't like. If you hang out all day in your head with Steve Jobs, it's like cool. Imagine hanging out trying to be in Elon Musk's mind. Thank you to all our regular podcast listeners. It's our pleasure and honor to make the show for you. If you find our show valuable, please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review it. Even better, forward it to a friend. A big mahalo to you for doing this. You're listening to Remarkable People with Guy Kawasaki. A few years back, I had been out of Apple a long time, and I knew someone who was in a middle management position, but in an area that interacted with Steve a lot because it had to do with conferences and appearances. Oh, ah. And he would tell me stories about how Steve Jobs wanted this special stool made in Switzerland and the bottled water couldn't be Evian. It had to be the one that the Tibetan monks got from the Himalayas melting and all that. And I said to him, so why do you put up with all that bullshit? And he said to me, you know why, guy? Because Steve Jobs enables me to do the best work of my career. I'll never forget that answer. Yeah, I believe that. Since we're going deep into Steve Jobs, so I absolutely adored the fake Steve Jobs blog that you had. Oh my God. <laughs> that just had me laughing in stitches so many times. So do you have any great stories about when you were fake Steve Jobs? This is a real softball NPR kind of question. Do you have any good stories about being the fake Steve Jobs, Dan? Well, guy. No, there was uh, a couple. One is that one time at I think it used to be called All Things Digital or All Things D. The conference where Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg were the hosts. They had this famous event where they had Steve Jobs and Bill Gates on stage together, which you think, man, a really historic moment. And two guys who more or less grew up with each other, had fought. And I don't even know how they convinced the two to get on stage together, but they did. And... It was when nobody knew that I was fake, Steve. It was still an anonymous blog. And before they began, like right at the start, Bill said to Steve, I just want to say, I'm not fake Steve Jobs. Ha, ha, ha. And everybody laughed. Like, I'm not the one making fun of you online. And then Walt said to Steve, oh, you know what he's talking about? Have you heard of that blog? And Steve was like, yeah, I've heard of that blog. And Walt said, well, what do you think about it? And he said, well... Sometimes it's funny, you know? And he said, well, the guy's got a book coming out. Are you going to read the book? And he's like, nah, I don't think I'll read. But I thought, wow, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs know about this blog. Wow, right? That, that blew my mind. <laughs> Another time, someone at Apple, because there were people at Apple who liked the blog, but couldn't ever say that. But I had a book tour and some of them came, they hid in the back or they'd reach out on this weird, on some email and say like, I'm from Apple, I'm coming to your thing, I want to meet you. And so I got to know some and I would never ask them any, you know, inside information. I just thought that was a line. Plus I, I was writing fiction. But they said, you know, sometimes 
you're really close to the truth. And one of them claimed that at an event they were getting together and there was something on that morning's blog and Steve said, you know, I don't know who that is, but sometimes they really get me. So <laughs> those were a couple a couple moments when it was fun. Made it all worth it. Because, because deep down, I really, really admired Steve Jobs. And I think to some extent the blog was taking the piss out of him a little bit. But the reason people really responded to it was when the times when fake Steve would say what you believe or probably what real Steve would love to say, but can't say in public. And I think people were like, yes, Steve Jobs. So yeah, I I admired him. And I think maybe that came through. I had a dream once because I spent so much time thinking about him every day for, I don't know, a year and a half while I was writing that. Like, all day long, all I do is imagine myself. I had a dream once that I met him and that we had this amazing conversation <laughs> and he was like such a cool guy <laughs> and everything. But, and I, I never did meet him. At the iPad introduction, I went there as a reporter from Newsweek and it was known now that I'm fake Steve. And as it was ending and breaking up, Steve was down by the stage, you know, surrounded by a bunch of people. And this guy, one of the fake Steve fans said to me, come on, he's right there. Let's just run down. You stand next to him. Say hi. I'll grab a picture really fast. Right? <laughs> Let's do it. And I thought, I just chickened out. Uh, I was afraid, you know. You should have done it. Oh, my God. I, I thought, what if he, he hates me? Anyway, <laughs> I was afraid of him like you were, I guess. You know? Oh, I, <laughs> believe me, I was. So then I tell you, you had fake Steve Jobs, you had him wired. And then you go on and you do Silicon Valley, the HBO series, and oh my God, that was so spot on too. That was not me. I mean, I contributed, but those guys spent so much time doing research you wouldn't believe it because they're writing just a comedy show. But every year, the whole writing crew would go up to Silicon Valley before the writing season, spend a week talking to people, interviewing Mark Andreessen and running <laughs> storylines by them. And we went to Google, would this ever happen? They would then video in people from Silicon Valley to talk for an hour or two. We just all ask them questions or they'd even fly people in and have them sit in the room with us. One season, we had Dick Costolo from Twitter on <laughs> staff as a writer for the whole season. And I sat next to him. So they really did a lot to try to get <laughs> real stuff. Also, the guy who ran that show is named Alec Berg. And he went to Harvard with Sheryl Sandberg and knew her even in college. They knew her, they knew her very well. So he could always, I don't know if he called her a lot, but he was no stranger to the tech industry. I think you should do fake Elon Musk. <laughs> Someone said that, but you know, he's almost a parody of himself already. You know? How hard could that be? <laughs> See, the advantage of Steve Jobs was because he didn't say anything, because oh. he was so secretive, he left this vacuum that you could fill. You're right. You know, it would be like spending gonna... hours every day with someone you don't like. If you hang out all day in your head with Steve Jobs, it's like cool. Imagine hanging out trying to be in Elon Musk's mind. <laughs> I don't think that's a happy place. <laughs> uh, so, 
How about you summarize your book? I love this book. The book is called STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. And in one sentence, the premise is that if you talk less, listen more, and speak with intention, you can make yourself happier, healthier, more successful, and most important, a better parent and a better partner. That's the book in a nutshell. That's a wrap, baby. (laughs) That's perfect. See, occasionally I can do it. I have an idea for you. You can say no, or you can think about it and say yes or no later. But in a few episodes, I do the equivalent of a podcasting gray bar. So when I did Sal Khan of Khan Academy, I actually talked to the proverbial niece who was having trouble with algebra and I called her up. So my idea for your episode is I call up your wife and I say, so like, all right, tell me. (laughs) So you think about that. I would love to do that. I don't know if you would and I don't know if she would, but you consider that, okay? I will ask her. I will tell you. She is incredibly smart. She has a PhD in Russian literature and is yeah. a fascinating person. But she's also an extreme introvert, extremely introverted, even though she's also a history teacher at a private school. So she spends all day up in front of yeah. kids. But I will ask her. She might, she might get a kick out of it. So, knock me over with a feather. Dan asked... And she agreed. So here's the recording of our phone conversation. Thank you very much for taking this call on a Friday night. I appreciate this very much. It's not like I have anything else to do. (laughs) I'm just sitting here. (laughs) I'm even more sorry to hear that. (laughs) So... Obviously, you know that I interviewed Dan about his book, and Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, it might be nice to hear the other side of the story from (laughs) Dan's wife. So I guess my question is, what's it like, or maybe what was it like, being married to someone (laughs) who can't shut up? (laughs) Well, we're we're still married. although we almost weren't for for a while. But I have to tell you, when we first started dating, it was really fun because he's a very funny person, and especially if you don't know the stories yet. (laughs) I would laugh so hard my stomach was hurting, and he could just go on and on for hours, and then he'd meet my friends, and they would say, oh my gosh, he should be a stand-up comedian. I mean, like, in all seriousness, I've never met anyone that funny. (laughs) So I think it's... in. In small doses, it's, you know, he can really be the life of the party. And I am, I am not funny, alas, and I'm not good at talking, which is kind of weird because I'm a teacher, so I talk a lot. But my students definitely, they will tell you, like, I I am not funny. They're like, don't even try to make jokes. Whereas (laughs) Dan can have them eating out of his hand. I mean, he gave a talk at my old school and they were just, they were dying. They loved it. So, you know... On like that surface level, it's easy because I can just sort of let him do the talking and be the star and I don't really have to do anything. The problem is when he would he gets carried away. He starts telling a story and he's kind of oversharing and 
people are uncomfortable or like they really have to leave and it's not that he doesn't get it because he's actually like very socially aware but he can't stop himself because it's like it's all based on anxiety right so it's kind of like watching a car wreck in slow motion is he better now he actually is he's really been working on it he has a meditation practice and he's put signs around his desk for when he's talking on work calls or interviews the kids will still bust him though at dinner or something when he starts they call it the danalogs right or the datalogs <laughs> he'll just launch into some topic and a lot of times it's something they've heard before and so my son will just start to finish the the danalog with like you know the imitating dad and and then yeah that just that just kills him <laughs> Well, <laughs> so so they can totally call call him on it but when they were younger they they didn't and they would just get annoyed <laughs> and that was another instance where he would see i'm really annoying my kid with doing this or keeping this line of conversation going and, and he couldn't stop himself until the kid would just be like you know screaming and crying in frustration and i would just be like why like why can't you just stop but it's like he can't stop. So that that like that I kind of don't that I don't relate to. But I've seen it, okay. I've seen it happen. So he really did start to work on it a few years ago and sort of try to change how he interacted. But it's still funny when he kind of falls back into <laughs> the old habits. <laughs> and if someone listening to this is married to a Dan kind of person, what's your <laughs> advice? They have to think that it's a a problem and want to do something about it. And it's not easy. It's not easy to do something about it, but it's, it's definitely possible. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're married to someone and they're an over talker, like you either think it's unbearable or you you don't. And like I said, in, in some ways it suited me because I didn't have to do the talking when we would be socializing or, or whatever. And so I could see that working out for some people. But yeah, I would say, well, read the book. So you, <laughs> you can do what you can't do. I mean, you can't really, you can't change who you are. And he says there's no cure for over-talking. It's just something that you, that you are aware of and you practice changing your habits, I think. We're honored to have both of them on the show and grateful for the wealth of knowledge, experience, and humor they shared. We hope you'll join us again next time for more thought-provoking insights from remarkable people. Remember, always listen more, talk less, and speak with intention. Thanks for tuning in to Remarkable People. Thanks to the great Remarkable People team, Peg Fitzpatrick, Jeff C., Shannon Hernandez, Luis Magana, Alexis Nishimura, and DIQ, Madison Nesmer. Want to know when there's a new episode of Remarkable People? Simply text 831-609-0628 if you live in the U.S. or Canada. Don't miss upcoming shows. Take a moment to follow Remarkable People in your app or podcast player. This is Remarkable People.